I want to talk about Jägermeister. Dad, what do you know about Jägermeister? I mean, well, really, all I know, it's got a really awesome stag logo. What, what else do I need to know about Jägermeister? Well, uh, you should know that you've been drinking it all wrong this entire time. Damn, that's cold. There's a right and wrong way to drink it? Yes, there is, Dad. You should be drinking it ice cold at zero degrees Fahrenheit, to be exact. Huh? Well, you know what? That explains a lot. I've just been pulling it straight off the shelf. Oh, Dad, I'm so glad I got to you in time. No, that is entirely wrong. The only way to serve Jägermeister is ice cold. So wherever you're at, if you're hanging out with friends or you're at the bar or you're helping your dear sweet father try and get right, call the shots. Cheers with ice cold shots of Jägermeister. Damn, that's cold. And remember to check out Jägermeister at www.draftkingsxjägermeister.com. Remember, drink responsibly. Jägermeister liqueur, 35% alcohol by volume. Imported by Mast Jägermeister US, White Plains, New York. Lots of things go better together. Hockey, food, golf, peanut butter and jelly, Gojo and Golik, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. What? But if you really want to take things to the next level, drink some Labatt Blue Lights with your friends and live life to the power of we. Always enjoy responsibly. Beer, Labatt USA, Buffalo, New York. You're listening to DraftKings Network. It's a beautiful What's up, everybody? Welcome to Gojo with Mike Golick Jr. That is me. With me, as always, Super Producer Brandon Newman and Isaiah out in the desert. Uh, Dad is over in Dublin, so he's not going to be with us today. He's taking in the sights and sounds, getting drunk in Ireland in advance of that Notre Dame Navy game. So joining me today, and we got a fun one for everybody, uh, Jason Fitz from Parts Unknown at this point, projects to be announced, back for another day with us here and joining us for another edition of Wilder Wednesday, you can check her out with Amin El Hassan over at Oddball, daily basketball content for your ass on the DraftKings Network. Our good friend Charlotte Wilder. What's going on, Char? <gasps> hey, Mike. I like that. Daily basketball content for your ass is actually our uh, headline. <laughs> or what is that? Slogan? I don't know. Anyway, thrilled to be here. Hi, Jason. I think we're going to have there- a fun show. Is there a difference between daily content, you know, basketball content for your ass versus for any other part of your body, Mike? Or is that just like, is it, is, does there differentiation somewhere? Uh, no, I mean, listen, if you're trying to get caked up for the fall, I like the idea that it might help in those gains. <laughs> but I just think in general, now I don't what want anyone to take. Saying? I'm just saying, how does, like, how does one get caked up for the fall, Mike? Please go on, give us details. I would like to think by listening to this podcast, and we got a great show. Download, subscribe, rate for review, leave us a five star rating. Let us know if this podcast has helped you with any of your lower body games that you've been trying to hit in the gym. But I, you know, I guess I need to put like the asterisk or disclaimer that the Gojo podcast and technically Oddball are not clinically proven to increase your lower body mass. But I like to think it's possible in an alternate world. Uh, look, I mean, I, yeah. I, I'm going to make some gains this fall, so I'm hopeful that you know this podcast gets me all caked up. I'm just going to keep saying caked up to at the gym and see how people your size respond to someone my size walking in and going, y'all, I'm here to get caked up. Honestly, in a room full of meatheads, especially if you go into the right gold gym, you might encounter a group that's pretty accommodating of that. Is this something you say, right? Like, do other people know what this means? Is this a Gen Z thing? Caked up? Yeah. Oh, you know, being caked up, I think, is pretty common vernacular about getting a big old thick booty. Yes. I think, yeah. Right, Brandon, okay, well, then- Brandon, you can back me up on this someone. As, as someone who is lower body compromised, um, Brandon Newman is many things. He is strong. He has a beautiful voice. He's a great dancer. He's a great comedian. But Brandon doesn't have a lot of booty. And so that's oh, always. <laughs> I'm, I was I'm, all for everything you were saying. Until you slander me for being assless, like some chaps. Like, I do not think that's fair in the slightest. You can vouch that I was one of the strongest squatters in, in Notre Dame during your time. And I squat, I haven't squatted in a long time. I've missed a couple leg days. Yes. And I, I try to supplement that with, with uh, lunges. But don't come to my jeans. Don't come in how they fit me. Caked up is a phrase. Let's stick with the. 
this show has just come up with a new nickname. I know we're completely off the rails, but now from now on, when you whenever you see somebody that's got a flat booty, just call them chaps. That's it. Like assless, like Ooh. chaps. That's it. Chaps is a new nickname for somebody that may not have a lot of backside help. All right, there we go. We've done a lot of good very early on in this podcast. Watch me steer it back onto the rails. Speaking of someone who might get caked up in the name of changing their employment future, let's talk about James Harden's $100,000 fine. Um, uh, the 76ers star obviously made news going over to China and calling Daryl Morey his GM and longtime associate. A liar said he would no longer associate with any organization that he was a part of. And the NBA was like, that sounds an awful lot like publicly saying you're going to hold out. And under their CBA, that is not something that they get down with. And so they announced Tuesday they're fining him $100,000 after an investigation where they did interview James Harden. Now, Charlotte, the NBA PA is pushing back on this, but this feels pretty obvious of him saying, now, maybe you can get off on the technicality of saying, well, I said I would never play for Daryl Morey, so they could always fire him. That doesn't necessarily mean I have to leave, but it feels like he's going to come up off hundred grand. Yeah, because he told league investigators, he was like, yeah, Daryl Morey lied about trading me sooner. And they're like, okay, so that's a pretty public way of saying, like, you wanted to get traded soon. You know, it's just like, you, can, you can't even spin zone this for James Harden, which is also just a little bit hilarious. They're like $100,000, and he's like, cool, I made at least $300,000 off of my wine live stream in China. Uh, Amin pointed that out on, on Oddball. He was like, I mean, just like, at least make it, at least make it a little bit, I don't know. It's just so funny. The whole thing cracks me up. James Harden is like, he is on a roller coaster and I just, I'm excited to see where he ends up and it's probably going to be just right back in Philadelphia. You mentioned the money part of it and think about it this way, y'all like, has there ever been anyone in your professional career that you've just said, you know what, it'd be worth like a grand to just go out at a press conference and be like, that person is a piece of you know what. Like, it, would you pay the price for it? Because that's what Harden's really, 100000 bucks to Harden, to your point, is he, he just made more than that. Like, he's not going to lose sleep over losing the hundred grand. I can tell you that there have definitely been people in my life in music or sports that I turn around and say, you know what, if you told me that it would cost me a thousand bucks, but I get to be completely truthful about this one jerk, I'd do it, right? So I think Hart, a little bit of this, like as much as I don't want to play like $100,000 as a flipping amount of money, to him it is. So if he wants to spend a flipping amount of money, you know, just reminding the world how he feels about something, I'm kind of all in for that. I mean, this is the NBA suspension version of Michigan self-imposing a three-game suspension for Jim Harbaugh during the three easiest games on their schedule. It's all relative. My dad always told the story. He got fined once in an NFL game. He had his jersey untucked, and they got the specific uniform rules. They want everyone to look nice and cute out there. And the referee came over and told him, hey, Mike, you need to tuck your jersey in. And my dad gave him a two-word response, and they were not two very nice words. And so he got the letter from the league office telling him he had been fined. I think it was something like 10 grand for a uniform violation, whatever the base fine in the CBA was. And for him at that point, as a former 10th round draft pick and someone who was trying to make the roster every year in a world before free agency had become a thing, my mom looked at him and go, we need a new washer dryer. What the hell's wrong with you? Why do you think this is something you can get away with? Tuck your damn jersey in. So it is all relative to everybody out there. Charlotte, I don't know if he has somebody he answers to. It seems like James Harden uh, probably has a little more leeway in that regard. Yeah, I don't think James Harden answers to anybody. And I think he's made that abundantly clear. I also, part of me, you know, whenever there's this sort of public beef, whenever someone comes out and is like, you know what, I'm going to use the court of public opinion, or I'm going to lob something into the media sphere to be talked about. I'm always a little bit impressed, even if I'm like, like, because I would never do that. Because to me, like the best way to make someone that has wronged you or, or to, to me, it's just not to say anything. It's be like, you didn't get under my skin. I'm not going to yep. say anything publicly. I'm going to just, I'm going to keep going and you're going to look like a jackass because you care and I don't. And so whenever someone comes out and is just passionate in public and, you know, has, and even in like celebrity feuds, when people are it's the same thing as athletes. I'm always a little bit like, okay, I respect that because you can't control it. 
once you say something in the in in the public that can go any which way and it might not go your way and i think that i always feel like oh my god i want to control something to the most of my ability in this situation that has to do with me and so part of me is like wow that's pretty it's pretty brave to just like toss this out there and see where it goes i i hear all of that because i think you and i are, are sort of cut that way right like it, it's certainly taking the high road is the easy thing to do if you're an nba player though part of the culture of the nba now is i want what i want i understand what i mean to the league i understand what i mean to teams so i'm going to say what i want to say you know and when you start doing the math, like if you just look it up, Harden's going to make $33 million this year. Mike knows I do this all the time. But like if you take $33 million, 1% of that is 330000 So let's say this is little less than half of 1% of his annual income to tell somebody to, you know what, but also to make it very clear that he doesn't want to be there. Like that's the other part of this is, is it worth the fine if he yeah. makes it very clear to the rest of the league? I want out. And he makes it clear at the same time to his team, I'm not going to sit here and be quiet. I'll pay half of 1% of my annual income to make sure the entire world knows exactly what I'm going to do until I get what I want. That at that point starts to make it make a little sense. It might not be the kind approach in this process, but it's definitely impacting his own destiny. Oh, yeah. I, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that, like, you know, there's the high road or to me, to me, not saying anything is actually the pettiest road you could take because it's like it's like the Don Draper quote when he gets into when someone gets into the elevator and he's like, you know, I hate you or whatever. I can't remember. He said, no, some guy says, I feel sorry for you. And Don Draper looks at him and says, I don't think about you at all. That to me is like the pettiest way. <laughs> and so so that's what that's what I mean. I'm like, I think it's actually sort of like nicer to just in public be like yeah this is how i feel to me i'm like you will not ever get anything out of me and so i think it's very impressive when someone uses the court of public opinion or at least like puts information out there that can further their cause so i i more just sort of admire it because i also don't want to take the heat that comes with saying something publicly well and that's that's really what this boils down to charlotte is all of this falls under in my mind the cost of doing business like, if you yeah. want a certain result, there are got to be certain things you're willing to do. And in the NFL, we see this going on with holdouts where guys are fined a certain amount of money. Zach Martin was fined something like $850,000 missing camp, but he had to send a message. Chris Jones with the Chiefs is holding out right now. And I saw on a Twitter exchange said that he was willing to hold out until week eight of the season. And someone mentioned the fine number and he said, I got it. Don't worry. These guys understand there has to be an inherent risk in sending the message that you want to get the desire that you want. And so that's all this is. While with James Harden, it's a little different because, as we said, he's an artist painting in his preferred medium, and he is innovating new ways to get out of his situation each and every year, including going to a foreign land and slandering the man that's been tied to him at the hip for his basketball lifetime. By calling him a liar and saying you never play with him again, that's just the artist at work. And if he's got to incur a little bit of a fine from it, in his mind, it's so be it because at the end of the day, the juice is worth the squeeze and the end result is he wants to get the hell up out of it. I want to talk about Jägermeister. Dad, what do you know about Jägermeister? I mean, well, really, all I know, it's got a really awesome stag logo. What, what else do I need to know about Jägermeister? Well, uh, you should know that you've been drinking it all wrong this entire time. Damn, that's cold. There's a right and wrong way to drink it? Yes, there is, Dad. You should be drinking it ice cold at zero degrees Fahrenheit, to be exact. Huh? Well, you know what? That explains a lot. I've just been pulling it straight off the shelf. Oh, Dad, I'm so glad I got to you in time. No, that is entirely wrong. The only way to serve Jägermeister is ice cold. So wherever you're at, if you're hanging out with friends or you're at the bar or you're helping your dear sweet father try and get right, call the shots. Cheers with ice cold shots of Jägermeister. Damn, that's cold. And remember to check out Jägermeister at www.draftkingsxjägermeister.com. Remember, drink responsibly. Jägermeister liqueur, 35% alcohol by volume. Imported by Mast Jägermeister U.S., White Plains, New York. Okay, now that we're all hungry thinking about cake, um, why don't we shift the focus a little bit? Uh, I saw this. So for anyone unaware, every podcast is someone's first. Uh, Jason Fitz, before his uh, illustrious career as a sportscaster, 
spent his time as a classically trained musician who then spent years on the road touring with the band Perry as their fiddle player and musical director. So Jason's always got some background on musical stuff that the rest of us kind of miss in just looking at the bright lights and sounds. And Jason, I saw everyone this last week has made a big deal out of Taylor Swift turning down the Super Bowl halftime show performance once more. Last year before Rihanna announced, there were a lot of people that thought in the buildup it might be her. And then this year coming off her massive U.S. world tour, a lot of people thought we might go back down that road. The economics of performing at the Super Bowl halftime show are always interesting because, and I think you've told me this in the past, Jason, correct me if I'm wrong, artists are not paid to do the Super Bowl halftime show by anyone in part of that process, right? Correct. Yeah, there's no no money comes from the NFL. They cover part of, but not all of your production costs. So you actually end up writing a pretty substantial check to play it. Now, the argument is that it's worth it because, you know, you played the Super Bowl and you're going to sell a ton of records after you do it. I think that's the caveat here we have to remember with Taylor Swift, right? Like she's already on the biggest tour in the world uh, or one of, you know, Elton John and Ed Sheeran would like to have a word, but she's on one of the biggest tours in the world. She's adding dates. She's playing all over the world. What is the real benefit for her now? You know, because it's interesting, Mike, with the band, we played the Super Bowl pregame show uh, a couple of times. So. I was actually in some of those. I, I got to talk to some of the people that make the decisions. And back when Pepsi was a lead sponsor, they wouldn't uh, allow anyone to play the halftime show that was associated with the brand Coke. So for years, because Taylor Swift had done a Coke commercial, she was actually out of the running. Now that Pepsi's not the title sponsor of the halftime show, they've opened this world back up. So it's a really good thing for music fans. But for Taylor, you got to look at it and say, what's my benefit? Like Beyonce's creative director, a buddy of mine, and, and did a lot of our creative directing. He spent months working just on every detail of the Super Bowl show. If you're Taylor and you're still adding dates and you're about to go overseas, how are you going to take every, the time that you would need, spend the resources that you would need, all of those things to turn around and play it? So I think it makes a lot of sense for Taylor to say no, because Frankly, she can say yes next year or the year after or the year after. Why do it when you're in the middle of the tour? I'd be surprised if she doesn't wait a couple of years and then before her next tour decide that she wants to build it around the Super Bowl. I also think that for Taylor Swift, she's out here playing football stadiums already. She doesn't need to play at a Super Bowl to play on the biggest stage. She has 80,000 people in the stadium and 70,000 more outside the stadium trying to hear what she's doing from inside the state. She already has the reach that the Super Bowl would give her. And I would also say if she's ever going to do it, it'll probably be once she has re-recorded all of her masters so that all mm. of the, I would be shocked mm. if this weren't a huge reason because so much of the bump, Jason, correct me if I'm wrong, is that people go back and listen to your old music. Like after Rihanna did the halftime show last year, I listened to all of her old albums for like three weeks. And so if that's the bump that you're looking for, Taylor doesn't want that money to go to, you know, Scooter Braun. Um, she wants it to go to herself. So I would imagine once she's re-recorded Reputation and maybe once the tour is over, she'd be like, cool, this would be a good way to get everyone to listen even more. But everybody's sort of already doing that. Yeah, and that's a good point. Paul McCartney is a great example. When he played the halftime show leading up to then, at the time, there were no Paul McCartney records in the top 100 on the charts. The week after the Super Bowl, I think it was seven or eight of the top 10 records were all Paul McCartney records. So that's, again, why we saw legacy acts do it for a long time, because they wanted to get back into the charts, make a little money. That's where you make the money that you offset on it. You know, So you make a good point. She's got to re-record those masters, but also just... I, I don't really see, when you think about the Super Bowl, there's so much pressure on it. And I'll never forget years ago when I was a little kid, I was taking a master class taught by, like at the time, one of the best violinists, the best violinist of my generation. And I asked the question in that master class, there's a, a super famous violin competition all over the world called the Tchaikovsky competition. So I was like, why have you never entered it? And I'll never forget, he looked at me and said, what's my game? If I win, all I did was what I was expected to do. If I lose, I've hurt my reputation in the music community forever. I've always thought of that with artists too, because if you're Taylor Swift and all you do is go out and put on the best halftime show in history, it was kind of what people would expect given the hype around Taylor Swift. If there's any part of it that isn't perfect, now people are like, ah, oh, Taylor's overrated. You, the narrative changes. So I, I just, when you when you stack all that up over here, the, the wants for fans are like, hey, go play it, go play it. For Taylor, she's looking at it and saying, why? Things are pretty good the way they are right now. I don't need to put myself in that pickle. I mean, this is the LeBron James dunk contest conundrum is what it is. 
It's 100%. what's the upside for me going and doing the dunk contest when, like you said, I'm expected to go out there and win this thing in spectacular fashion when in actuality – there are a million other more likely outcomes than that that all just make me lesser than and especially for someone of his caliber or really a lot of like superstar players going forward a lot of them are like man my legacy is already hyper scrutinized by every talking head on tv and every fan in a barbershop why am i going to feed cole into that fire and help them out with all this which sucks because all of that going back to like charlotte and yours point about Hey, the fans are the winner when something like this happens in general. The fans have lost out continually because we didn't have a lot of the best players entering the dunk contest over the years. And it's part of the reason that events lost a lot of cachet, Charlotte. Yeah, totally. I mean, like when the Today Show, when Good Morning America, they all call me and they're like, we want you to come on. I'm like, what's my game? Like I only, everyone's just going to expect me to smash it. But like if I don't, no, I'm kidding. No one's ever asked me to go on a morning show. Um, Yeah, I think that that's something that you can also argue about for all-star games and all-star competitions. And is it is it worth it to have it be the second tier people and not second tier like a lot of great players still do it but i mean we had mac sure. long last last year no no offense to mac you're great <laughs> um i i do think though that with the super bowl there are so many people and artists who like there are only a few who would not gain anything from doing it maybe taylor swift beyonce Elton John probably at this point, like for everyone else, this is going to be a significant bump. So it really shows you the caliber of people you're talking about um, when it comes to that. that. That's why I like the rumor of Miley Cyrus and Harry Styles, because mm. Harry Styles made more money Woo! on his last tour than he'd made in all of the One Direction tours combined. Also, Miley has made it clear she doesn't want a tour. So if Miley doesn't want a tour, but she still wants to promote new music, which she's doing right now, why not make this the way to do that? She does one show. They make it a huge spectacle. That's a rumor I'm buying because it makes sense when you put the logic together. Oh, man, that's a rumor I am eating up right there. As someone who saw the Harry Styles tour, there is nothing that little British boy wants more than for everybody to just have a good time. And isn't that what the Super Bowl <laughs> halftime show is supposed to be about anyway? Love that. Need more of it. The NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action on DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. And now that the Boston Celtics have slayed the boogeyman in the Miami Heat, Boston fans will feel a little bit more confident about the situation. You can decide right now, and if you're new to DraftKings, you can also check this out. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get 150 in bonus bets instantly. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code GOJO. That's code GOJO for new customers to get 150 in bonus bets when you bet just 5 bucks. Only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. That's 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas, 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.co slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Uh, so as we're leading up to football season and, and we'll have more conference previews, I think we got the Big 12 that we're going to do on Friday, three big questions that we've been doing for that. But it, it's been fun in the lead up to always get some nostalgia content. But I feel like we finally reached the tipping point with the Untold docuseries. They dropped on Netflix that Swamp Kings docuseries about the Florida Gators from like 06 to 09, the Urban Meyer Florida Gators with Tim Tebow and Percy Harvin and the Pouncey Brothers and Aaron Hernandez, 75% of which in that group that I just mentioned were mentioned almost not at all during the four episodes of this docuseries. Charlotte, I know you didn't get a chance to watch this. Fitz, I know you did, but guys, just in general, taking in the the untold docuseries that's now done, among other things, the Manti Teo documentary, documenting the Lene Kakua saga in 2012 of my season at Notre Dame, uh, most recently the Johnny Manziel documentary about his time at Texas A&M, and now throwing Swamp Kings into this as well, they've kind of become unreliable in telling the stories that people actually want to hear. Like, Jason, I'd start with you. This Florida Gators documentary, when we saw the original promo for it, 
looked so promising. It's such an interesting era, and it's marred by controversy. Obviously, the things we know about Aaron Hernandez and what ended up befalling him, the number of players that were arrested for various things on that team, the Tim Tebow factor of all of it, the fact that you had Cam Newton in that quarterback room for a time as well before he was kicked out of the university. All these things that could have made it very compelling, and instead of what it felt like we got was an Urban Meyer and SEC puff piece just there to tell us how hard competition is and how big old boys they got in the SEC. They forgot their audience, Mike, and that's, I think, the worst thing you can do with the documentary because realistically, you got to ask yourself, no matter what we do in media, any of us, who's listening to it, what do they care about, what do they come in knowing, right? And when you think about college football fans particularly, college football fans are like baseball fans. They know the history, they know the stories, they know the rumors, they know the legends, they know all of it. They live, eat, and breathe it. And it, it was interesting because Feinbaum was in the beginning of, I think, episode one saying it's like, you know, SEC football's like life and death. That statement was being made to all of the people that were watching it because frankly, if you don't really care about college football, are you flocking to watch a documentary, a four-part documentary about, you know, the Florida Gators? I don't think so. So this should have been made for the diehards. And if you're making it for the yep. diehards, what you can't do is insult their intelligence. And what I thought the entire series did was basically say, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain over here. We just want to tell you these fluffy stories about Urban Meyer because he's in the room. You can't do that because college football fans were watching it specifically for everything you mentioned. That Florida Gators chapter was defined by greatness and controversy. You cannot acknowledge one without acknowledging the other. And if you do so, all you're doing, if you, if, if you don't acknowledge the other, then all you're doing is discrediting the way that you went into the entire process. I, I walked away from it a massive uh, a, a disappointment, and I walked away from it wondering what the hell they were trying to accomplish by doing it that way for that target audience. It's funny when you have a doc that, you know, I'm like, I didn't see it, but the way you're trying, I'm like, was Urban Meyer a producer on it? Because it reminds me of these um, docs about, you know, like we, on Onball, we recently talked about the Steph Curry doc, um, underrated. It was all, they, they didn't even say that that Steph Curry's dad played in the NBA. They didn't mention that one. Like, no, like, oh, 16 years in the NBA and he was actually pretty good. It was like, look at this kid who came up through Davidson. And you're like, what? And it's that same thing of insulting the intelligence of the fans. Cause like any any sports fan, I think sometimes if you, and, and I feel this way in sort of when sports are talked about in general media, right? You're like, if you don't know that when you talk to sports fans, they know every single thing you're already saying and they are going to argue with you about it and you better bring something new to the table, you've lost already. And I felt that way about the Manziel doc and I felt that way a little bit about the Mante Teo doc. I feel like these, I feel like, I don't know what it is. Is it that the filmmaker gets too close to the subject? Is it they're like, you know what? I actually kind of like Johnny. So let's just tell it from his perspective, make him look like a guy who, there, they, they made. There was no reaching out, or at least they didn't say they reached out to any of the other people that Manziel really messed with. I mean, I, I'm sort of like, if this isn't for sports fans, as you're saying, Fitz, then like, who's who's watching this and and coming away with a fairly one sided opinion of these people? Yeah, and Charlotte, to your point there about omitting obvious details that your audience would be well acquainted with too, the Manziel documentary did that and making it seem like that Texas A&M team was just dragged by Johnny Manziel to success as if Mike Evans and a host of other incredibly talented future pro players weren't also a part of that roster. They skate over key details of the things that we know, and I'm glad you brought up the Manti one because with all these, it seems to be we've got access to certain people who will sit and so their version of the story definitely seems to get a little bit more version of this front and center, Charlotte. Well, because think of the people who are sitting. Manti Teo, Johnny Manziel. Was Urban Meyer in the Florida doc? Yes, he was. Oh, Urban Meyer was front and center okay, the entire all of these time people, on this. If you're a sports fan, you know that those three people have one thing in common, which is that it can't get much worse for them. So they, it's talk, talking about like with Taylor Swift, like what does she have to gain from doing the halftime show? Cause she's already on top. When you're on the bottom in terms of public opinion and scandals and things that have happened to you and you get a, a, a sympathetic ear in a filmmaker and you can tell that very quickly when you talk to a doc maker, if you're like, uh, I, I'm, 
obviously they're going to do it and they're going to sit there and then they're going to, they're all charming people. They charm you into being like, you know what? Maybe, maybe they're, maybe they're all right. Maybe we totally read all of this the wrong way and it feels manipulative to the audience. But that's where I think we, again, to go back to the way we cover sports sometimes, but I think the job of everybody's a little different, right? Like uh, as somebody that was part of the ESPN world for a long time, I understand why ESPN talks about the Lakers and the Cowboys so much because the just the general sports fan turns it on or is watching in the bar of the airport. They may not be as informed. That's fine. When somebody goes to the documentary, I think you got to understand that, yeah. frankly, that person's going in for a deeper level of understanding. The problem for documentary makers is that, they're not going to get Johnny involved unless they give Johnny some sort of uh, opportunity to control how it's edited. They're not going to get Urban Meyer to sit down unless Urban somewhere somehow has some say in these things. And so then you got to think about, can we do a documentary about the Florida Gators without these people? I would argue, yes, you could. You could do a better documentary, but you'd have to be willing to acknowledge that in the sizzle that goes up on Netflix for 20 seconds, you don't have Urban Meyer one-on-one -on -one sitting in front of the camera. So it feels like in an attempt to get more eyeballs on it, they'll sacrifice the quality of it in order to get the big name that everybody needs. But then you watch it and you get disappointed and then you don't believe in the brand anymore. I will say the one defense I will say of the Manti documentary is they at least gave us what we were coming for. Like we knew the yeah. basis of that story and they gave us access to the person that had been behind the Lene Kakua identity. You got to hear more from Manti on it, which you know you did to an extent, but that was largely through what the media told of the story during the 2012 season. And it at least addressed the thing. We didn't go to that documentary and then just talk about the 2012 Notre Dame season on field and how that went in Manti's Heisman Trophy thing. With the stories of Johnny Manziel, with the stories of Florida, the fascination that we come here for is What's the inside look at how you kept all of those personalities together? What went on off the field? How were those interactions? How did other players digest what was going on with those guys that were running into very serious legal trouble or their lives off the field? And that was largely ignored. And that goes back to Fitz's point about understanding your audience. Like, you're absolutely right. This isn't a general group tuning into ESPN radio that I got to hook in five minutes in their car. We all made the choice to sit down here because we lived through that era. It's nostalgia. I want, These were some of the premier college football teams of my young adult lifetime. And I remember very clearly some of those hits, you know, major right cracking buddy in that national championship game from Oklahoma square in his chest. Brandon Spikes running over Sean Marino. Those are football core memories in my lifetime i can watch those on youtube and espn classic i came here for you to tell me something i didn't know about all of the things that we knew swirled around that program and we got very little of those in exchange for that access and that was the disappointment where i at least felt like man we addressed the elephant in the room when it came to the Manti doc, even if people might have felt like it was one viewpoint that was served we didn't really touch that elephant in the johnny manzel or the florida gators documentaries Think about this too, Mike. At the end of Swamp Kings, when Netflix brings up the other things you might be interested in, first thing you brought up for me was like three different Aaron Hernandez documentaries, none of which was covered in Swamp Kings, right? Like I'm, I'm sitting here saying, oh good, that's a way to remind me that he was really in here because th there was no real conversation about the, the, the problems and the issues. And that's the thing that like, if you watched that untold on Florida, you felt like you were watching a coach try and persevere through getting out of the shadow of Steve Spurrier and a team that was on the cusp of greatness that just had to figure out how to put it together thanks to the toughness of Tim Tebow. Like, I watched a damn Disney movie is what I watched. And the, of, of all the, the eras of college football to be turned into a Disney movie, I don't think, and like, Charlotte, I don't think you can do that to that one. It just feels like that's where the lie lives. No, we've already got Rudy. Like, what's going to top that? Um, I think. I think yeah, right. also there is. I think something that that filmmakers and storytellers and people might lose sight of is that the allure of access. And I guarantee you, more people would have watched this. It's a brave thing to do to not include the main subject because you're going to tell the truth. And I would argue that the product you make from that will actually end up being stronger and will probably make you more money because more people are gonna watch it because word of mouth will be like, people can sniff out quality, they can sniff out when they're being lied to, but it's a harder sell to Netflix. It's a harder sell to the marketing people. It's a harder sell to be like, hey, uh, 
yeah, we're going to do this story and it's actually going to be great. And we're going to talk about Aaron Hernandez and we're get, getting into all the juicy stuff that people want to know. But Urban Meyer's not going to do it because he can tell that we're not going to paint him in the best light. And I can see marketing people being like, well, who's going to watch it? You know, it's a disconnect between execs and people who actually know what fans want that you see a lot of the time across the board, whether it's in sports media or a more general audience. I mean, Mike, I don't, I don't know if that if that's too much speculation or if you think that that's also possibly what's going on here. No, I, I do think there's certainly a possibility uh, that that is the case in this situation. And I, I just I'm running through a list of things right now. Jim Weber on Twitter put together a list of all the things that weren't touched in this documentary, and they are staggering. Any mention of Aaron Hernandez besides taking the Tim Tebow taking the blame for a bar fight he was involved in in 2007. No mention of the Pouncey twins. They were featured on camera, but not mentioned. Cam Newton had one moment. Throwing a pass in practice in B-roll in this documentary. Obviously, no mention of the stolen laptop. Percy Harvin, anything about him attacking their wide receiver coach. Carlos Dunlap's arrest before the 09 SEC championship game. On and on down the list, Like there are all of these moments that are a compelling part of the Florida Gators story that are just completely brushed aside in the name of, again, going back to, like, don't get me wrong, I have a lot of questions. They were showing Matt Drills, uh, Charlotte, the off-season workouts that guys would do, where players were literally just UFC fight-style wrestling on matches, mats, choking each other out. I want to know from other early 2000s football players, is that how you guys all got down? Like, we did some competitive, like, hyper-manly, you know, King of the Ring stuff where we'd try and push each other out, or we'd be in a tire-dragging competition, things like that. Never was one I was one was I once given the opportunity to choke one of my teammates into submission to the point where they passed out. Thank God, because I probably wouldn't have been able to pull that off. I probably would have gotten choked out. But was that how everyone was getting down back then? That was crazy. Did did you guys do the ab workout thingies? Because like ab workout thingies, that's the official name of it for anyone checking it out. Uh, where they were laying on the ground and they had to do the ab workouts, but their feet couldn't touch the ground. And if anybody's feet touched the ground, they had to start the whole thing over. Because I do feel like if that's something like, you know, it, it feels like that could get a little contentious when they were telling the story of having to start the drill over and over and over again because one freshman just couldn't keep up with it. Like, did, were you all getting those rock hard abs there, Mike? Well, yeah, I mean, listen, like every program does stuff like that because that's the other thing. This program kind of preyed on, oh, man, look at how hard workouts are. And anyone who's been around college sports is like, yeah, like everyone has hard workouts in some version of Hell Week or some version of the midnight workouts that they showed there. And altercations between teammates, not totally uncommon. Like, yeah, he walked over and punched a guy in the face because he wasn't holding up his end of the bargain in the workout. I've seen teammates get in fights before. I don't know if I've ever seen a teammate get full-on punched in the face, but... I've seen it come close because that's how it works. I mean, hell, we're looking at the NFL right now, and we are seeing a rash of training camp fights that are prompting the end of practices here. Jason Kelsey came out, one of the Eagles' captains, one of their best players, a veteran in this league, highly respected figure, came out and had to apologize and straight up said after a fight that occurred in joint practice with them and the Colts, who they know Shane Steichen, the head coach of the Colts, they're all cool there. But he got hot and bothered in practice because some Zaire Franklin, a linebacker for the Colts, put hands on Kenneth Gainwell, their running back. And Jason said, that was a cheap shot. I made a mistake. I let my emotions get the best of me. That guy is getting carried away and getting a little violent in a place that he shouldn't on the field there. So, yeah, we can't act surprised when every once in a while teammates are going to come to blows in a high-stress environment like that. That's just showbiz, baby. The the Kelsey thing, did you see what Zaire Franklin said after? Because Kelsey, oh. he was like, we he I was like, oh my God. That so Kelsey uh after this that he was asked if, you know, did you talk to Franklin? And he was like, No, I think emotions were a little too high. Zaire Franklin hits everybody with a, you know, I grew up watching Kelsey play. I really admired him. We even spoke a few times after we played last year. And then he goes, I would expect the OGs to at least look me in the eye before they do something like that. Like, I'm going to have a chance to look them in the eye on Thursday. And I'm like, everybody, like, get out your popcorn for Thursday. Also, maybe make sure that everybody's okay. Because, like, this is great. I mean, it, it you rarely see, I think, someone uh, go that hard in a press conference after something like this had happened. And um, sort of what we were talking about earlier, like, Talk about talk about lobbing something out there into the public. I mean, whoo. 
See, I just I took the Kelsey move as a just a vet move to sneakily get rid of like joint practice. He just didn't feel like practicing anymore. So he's like, hey, we get a good brawl in here. We can all take the rest of the day off. Like, I, I feel like that's like I could hear Mike coming up to me being like, hey, I need you to go just go start a fight with that guy so that we can have the rest of the day off. Like, I, I'd go do that for you, Mike. Like, that's what I figured that was. It was just a vet move. I mean, there are and there are vets that will do that late in training camp, especially in like O-line, D-line, one-on-ones who will kind of just wink at each other before the rep start a fight, knowing it'll end the period a little early. Jason, your point about joint practices in general is interesting, though, because we saw a joint practice canceled, I think, between the Texans and the Saints coming off this last weekend. The Patriots also canceled their joint practices with the Titans, which that was coming off. Isaiah Bolden suffered one of the, you know, scary injuries over the weekend. Thankfully, seems like he's going to be okay. But coming off of that, the Patriots said, we're going to go back home, sort of regroup there. You could infer that maybe that had some effect on it. But it is interesting, Charlotte, to your point about how high the meter's running right now and how hot the feelings are. The Bill Belichick-led Patriots were one of the architects of joint practices becoming a thing. This idea that in preseason, this thing that feels largely meaningless to a lot of people who aren't trying to go earn jobs out there, who it is very meaningful for, but people who looked at preseason games as this imperfect place to go iron, sharpen iron, and the Patriots were one of the teams that led the charge. I remember we did joint practices with them when I was with the Saints, and you get a lot of good work because you've got people in a controlled environment that are still highly competitive because it's finally different colored jerseys hitting each other. The Patriots being one of the teams to raise their hand and say, no, we're not going to do that this week is interesting to me as a thought going forward because we are seeing more and more public publicized talk about the fights in practice, people losing valuable work because everyone gets a little bit too overzealous getting a chance to finally hit someone new. It'll be interesting to see if that becomes a trend going in the opposite direction and if the Patriots are one of the ones leading the charge on that again. Well, I think too, when one of your players gets hurt, when one of you, when sure. one of your players suffers an injury where not only is it bad for the player, but like let's look at it from a capitalistic standpoint, like that's going to hurt your chances of success. You'd be pretty quick to pull the plug in a way that feels a little bit like, okay, well when it happens to you, it's different. Um, I don't know. I I think that there's a lot too about adding the extra game a few seasons ago maybe that has something to do with it but yeah i think many more teams are going to be like what are we like is this worth it do we want to be doing but this? the whole the hard part about that though y'all is like i i get that but as i've said a million times if you only have what 14 padded practices during the entire season like you only have so many times that you can try and get better like how are guys earning jobs if we want to continue to reduce the preseason? How are guys earning jobs if we don't have joint practices? I know I read the athletic article about the the Chiefs and basically they still do it the old way and they they stay they stay home and they do maybe that's the right approach. I don't know. I just uh, as we all try and figure out ways to fix preseason football, I just worry about players trying to find ways to get on rosters. And that may be the reckoning fits because I think there's the disconnect of that group who I certainly empathize and identify with who's trying to get a job, but also the way management and head coaches probably look at this saying, we just want to get out healthy with the guys that are going to impact our team the most. Uh, starting and ending as the world's most caked up podcast, although technically that might not be true spiritually. We got that cake. Um, before we get to this, that, and the third, if you could ignore the absolute bodacious heinies on me and Fitz right here. Fitz, that's the most ass I think you've ever had, right? Uh, well, you know what? I do love cake, uh, as you know, and uh, I feel pretty proud of the cake that I'm the, the backside cake. Uh, it should be noted, like I can barely do a lunge uh, with, with, like in, in general, like my my little tiny bird legs, as you know, don't uh, like I have to work really hard to get anything going on these legs, and especially on that booty. But you know what? It's cake season, so let let's go by the by Christmas time. That's what, exactly what I'm going to look like. My God, my God in heaven. Shout out to super producer Brandon Newman, who is a menace on Photoshop. Uh, making sure that we're right. Looking good for the fall. I want to walk onto campus in the fall, making sure I'm toting a wagon. And it sounds like after that, I will be able to do just that. Um, before we go, to just that in the third. Three quick stories to end the game. Yeah. I can't. That wagon boy. Woo! <laughs> Smuggling Christmas hams. In the <laughs> Stop, Fitz is going to have a heart attack. 
This is always good when I hit his laugh button. He can't stop that. I'm going to bail Fitz out while he laughs through this one. Before we get to this, that, and the third, and tell everyone, if you want to go out there and not only look good in your caboose, but look good up top, too, on your face ass, you can clad your face with knock-around sunglasses. The high-quality polarized sunglasses that aren't going to break the bank for you there. They start at just $28. They've got the first nine teams of their MLB collection. It's unbelievable. The Red Sox, the Yankees, the Astros, the Mariners. You can get still your U.S. women's or men's national team soccer sunglasses. Get ready for the upcoming Olympics. Support the cause. Don't be the person squinting into the sun trying to get sand out of your overpriced shades. No, no, no. Head over to knockaround.com. Check out the best high-quality polarized shades starting at just $28. And use code GOLIC when you get there for free shipping on your order. Friends, patriots, let's get to this, that, and the third. And let's start off with this. Lonzo Ball had a message for one Stephen A. Smith. We are living in the golden era of athletes being able to respond quickly and fiercely at their uh, detractors. Stephen A. Smith apparently went on first take and said that Lonzo Ball, who was recovering from an offseason knee procedure, was having trouble even standing up after sitting. Lonzo Ball then took to social media to record a video of him responding to Stephen A. while doing single leg squats out of a chair. Charlotte, um, I feel like it's a good place that we've arrived at where young athletes are both social media savvy enough and comfortable enough clapping back at the talking heads on TV to give us this kind of stuff for free. Well, I especially liked the way that Lonzo did it, which was he got very, he did a Stephen A impression almost. He was like, look at me, where are you getting your information? He was like yelling about it and it was very short and he just kept standing up and also saying that someone can't sit is like the funniest, to to be able to clap back at that. I mean, just A plus gold stars all around. Yeah, no, Stephen A's won the life lottery though, guys, because he can even be wildly wrong and still become a sensation out of it. Let's just be honest. Like he's at that spot where he could say pigs are flying and people be like, oh, that's right. You have a million views. So there we go. Like Stephen A secretly winning on all of this wrong or not. This promo, by the way, since I never watched any of the like Lonzo Ball or Ball family documentary stuff on Facebook, this is the most Lonzo ever sounded like his dad. Cutting a wrestling promo and doing it with a little bit of force behind it. I was like, oh, okay, there it is. There's the gene pool coming into play here. He absolutely knows how to work the camera better than I gave him credit for. So we're glad he's getting well soon. We hopefully look forward to seeing him back out on the court and his brother, who have both turned into sensational players. Um, Speaking of sensational basketball players. Asia Wilson, come on down. Uh, The Las Vegas Aces star, 11 days after setting her career high of 40 points, decided to go out there and tie the WNBA single-game record with 53 points in the uh, Aces' win over the Atlanta Dream. She dropped 53 on their heads on 16 of 23 shooting and 20 of 21 from the free-throw line. Jason, I know all things Vegas are near and dear to your heart. Having a basketball team that's a full-blown juggernaut has to be an absolute joy. Uh, It is. And by the way, we're all waiting for that uh, vaunted final that we're going to get between Vegas and New York. Like that's the inevitability that's coming. Mark Davis also Mm -hmm. has done a a really, frankly, a really nice job with this. Like the the Aces have become a phenomenon in the city that I love, which is incredible. And the team this year is absolutely wildly good. It is a weird spot in the WNBA though, Mike, because I feel like we're at a spot right now where there are three or four teams that are actually very good. They could contend for a title and the rest of the league just looks like a bunch of bad basketball. So uh, while I take nothing away from what Vegas is doing, I do look at this and say, man, the W would be in much better hands if they could spread some of this. Like I love super teams, But right now you've got three teams, I think, that have a a general shot at the title and everybody else is just going to be popping popcorn and watching it like me and you. I don't know that I love that for the league. Regardless of the league, the the Asia Wilson performance, I just want to read what Becky Hammond, what head coach Becky Hammond said about it. Uh, She runs like a deer, jumps like a cat and catches as if she were Superman. She is just special. Her real gift is in her humility and grace and how she handles herself and her teammates. She is a phenomenal superstar. That might be the nicest thing I've ever heard a coach say about a player ever. I also love that she did, you know, we always do that graphic when we're talking about a quarterback prospect, and it's like, he's got Peyton Manning's mind and Tom Brady's feet, and he's got Patrick Mahomes' arm, that she essentially did the Madden creative player with Asia Wilson and drawing her that way. But I love that somewhere that you'd have to carve out incredible heart and spirit and a great person right in the middle of all that. So someone uh, make that graphic up because it's incredible. Her career, um, I saw uh, Jordan uh, Jordan Liggins posted this 
on Twitter. Asia Wilson in her first five years in the WNBA. Rookie of the Year, Community Assist Award, MVP, Defensive Player of the Year, MVP, 2022 WNBA Champion, five-time All-Star, and now has tied the single-game scoring record with 53 points. That is a full career packed into about five years already and shows no signs of slowing down. So, uh, Fitz, to your general point, I think most leagues are better when you know what the stakes are and who the best teams are. I think dynasties and really powerful powerhouse teams are good because they force everybody to raise their game. They draw easy attention. They give you names that everyone can know. And names like Asia Wilson are going to become readily available in easy parts of the conversation around the basketball world. When you got guys, I saw Evan Turner who said, I hoop like Asia Wilson for real. Like stuff like that, having the WNBA more involved in these basketball conversations on a more frequent basis, net positive for everybody involved. Let's get to a net negative to finish things off with the third. Billy McFarlane's out of prison. The architect of Firefest. We talk about documentaries that went wild. Firefest, uh, a festival that was designed to bring a whole host of young people to an island for a party the likes of which they've never experienced, which turned into a hellscape full of bad cheese sandwiches and poorly lit uh, latrines, is now back on for season two. Billy McFarlane's stint in prison for fraud gave him time to churn out a 50-page business plan to revive Firefest. He posted a video Sunday saying that they would have a new festival in the Caribbean sometime in 2024. Dates, specific locations in the lineup have been withdrawn, but tickets, Jason, are on sale starting at $499 and going up to $7,999 per the festival's website. You going? No, I mean, this is Charlie Brown running after the football and it gets moved, right? Like, until I see that he actually pulls it off, there's no way. I'd spend your money on it. You want to buy tickets for all three of us? We'll go together. We'll do a show from there. But I ain't spending my money on it. And also, if I'm an act, I want every dollar up front the minute he asks me to play it. So he better have all of that money in the bank. Like, if festivals pay kind of weird, you need to make sure that you get paid up front for that. Because I don't trust him uh, for anything. But, you know, hey, Charlotte, if, if Mike wants to take us, I'd be in for going. I don't even know if it's, I, I don't know if you could pay me to go to this. Also, I'm sorry, you're in prison for two years and you come up with a 50 page business plan. Hit us with 400 billion. I'll be impressed, but come on. That's like a Tuesday. Classically read Charlotte Wilder scoffs at your notion that 50 pages is anything to write home. I just want to know if Ja Rule's back in or not. That'll tell me the absolute sincerity of this and the viability. If he can convince Ja Rule to come back and lend his reputation to this all over again, I have serious doubts about that. We'll wait and see. Uh, friends, as always, make sure you check out uh, Jason Fitz at Jason Fitz on Twitter. Make sure you check out Oddball wherever you get your podcast with Charlotte Wilder and Amin El Hassan. And of course, download, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Leave us a five star rating. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you guys tomorrow. Go, go. Boom. Money in the bank.